the second half of Hebrews 8, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant. Excuse me, then the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I think one of the great tragedies of the last hundred years uh, has been uh, the continual rise of uh, divorce. Divorce is one of the terrible realities of the fallen world that we live in. And, And it's true not just inside of the church or outside of the church. It's also true inside of the church. And it has left families broken. It has left uh, broken promises. It's something that we see happening in the Bible as well. And the Bible recognizes the, at times, the grounds for divorce. We uh, see those as infidelity and abandonment. But I think it's particularly hard when you see someone forced into divorce. Someone who does not want to divorce, but has no choice. And this is the very thing we see in our text today. God, who was in covenant relationship with his people, whose spouse, the church, Israel, played the infidel. She was the harlot. She worshipped other gods. She rejected the Lord. She broke the marriage covenant. Jeremiah 3 says this, She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a divorce, a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Thankfully, there's a great difference between God and us where Uh, We at times cannot find the way to restore the relationship. God does. He has the ability to restore, to remake what has been broken. 
He is able to keep the promises that he has made no matter what. This is the promise he's going to make in this passage today. It's the promise of the book of Exodus. I will be your God and you will be my people. In fact, he's going to go on and we'll see this to say this is so much true that you're not going to have to go to your neighbor and and tell them this because they're going to know it. They're going to know who I am. But as we enter into this conversation, as we look at this idea of a new covenant, uh, what are we to make of it? What was the problem with the old covenant? Some will look at the covenant with Moses and say, well, the problem is it wasn't a covenant of grace. I, I believe that to be wrong. It was wholly a covenant of grace. They didn't do anything to take themselves out of Egypt. They didn't do any of that. It it was littered with grace. God in his mercy had grace upon this people, Israel. But we'll see here, and what the writer of Hebrews is quoting from, is Jeremiah 31. There became a time in God's relationship with Israel where she turned her back on God where she played the harlot. And so Israel, who was brought out of exile in Egypt, returned to exile in Babylon. They broke the relationship, and so they went back to where, in essence, they began. But there's hope in Jeremiah 31, because Jeremiah 31 tells us there's a day coming where a new covenant will be made. You failed to keep this covenant, but I will not fail. I will see that it is done. Verse 13 enforces this. I'm speaking of a new covenant, which will make the first one obsolete. And it's possible, we don't know specifically here, but it's possible that the writer of Hebrews has in mind the events of AD 70. If you don't know what happened in 8070, I'm sure you all do. I'll just say it for the sake of reminder, because I'm sure we all know what happened in 8070. That's a joke. That's funny. No, okay. 8070, the fall of Jerusalem. Rome came into Jerusalem and obliterated the temple. From that point on, the sacrificial system stopped. Sacrifices no, no longer go on. The Jewish religion, religion continues, but there are no sacrifices any longer. Rome would come in and put an end to this. And with the end of the sacrifices came something better. The old covenant wasn't obsolete because it lacked grace. The problem was it didn't affect the sinner internally. It was merely an external covenant. This is what I need you to do. I need you to take sacrifices continually. I need you to bathe yourselves. Nothing affected the heart. When Jesus came, he did something better. It became internal It became a heart change. People today, they they think that in rejecting God or in rejecting deity, they have freed themselves. I have freed myself from the constraints of religion. But in actuality, 
They cannot escape the consequences of their sins. We needed something more. And that's what we'll see today. Three points as we look at this new covenant. A better law, a better forgiveness, and a better promise. A better law, a better forgiveness, and a better promise. As we come and we look at these things, I want to remind you of something we said either last week or the week before. The temple was only ever a shadow. It was a shadow that was in the shadow of the cross. It was pointing us to something else, always. And so when we come to our text today, we have to be reminded of that. So let's begin by looking at a better law. The first great promise here begins, I think, in verse 10. For this is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel. And he goes on. I will put my law into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. The old covenant law, the old Testament law did not give them the ability to receive it, to love God and keep its demands. Romans 8, 3 says this, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. God did in Christ what the law could not do. We could not externally keep the law. So he sends Jesus who can externally keep the law. And then he punished him for our lack of keeping the law. The new covenant, God makes provision for human weakness. Not only to give us the law, but to place it within us. There's this really cool thing going on here that if we're careful, we'll miss. Do you know where the law was kept in the Old Testament? The ten, the, we talk about the Ten Commandments. Do you know where it was kept? It was kept in the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets of the law. Specifically, the, Ark, the Ten Commandments were kept under the mercy seat, in the center. The mercy seat. Do you know what was significant about the mercy seat? When the Day of Atonement came... The blood was brought in by the high priest. Do you know where he poured that blood? On the mercy seat. In essence, this is what it was communicating. You cannot keep these laws. This blood is poured upon here as an atonement for your not being able to keep these laws. Okay, now don't miss this. Where are those laws now? Here. And Jesus comes and he takes his blood he pours it over your heart so that now that atonement that merely went over this ornate box to these lifeless tablets is poured over your heart this is what the writer's talking about here there's a lot here that we can get confused about okay old covenant new covenant law the mind hearts that's what it's talking about that the blood of Jesus Christ has been poured Upon your heart and made atonement for your failure to keep the law. The law is in you. The word of God is written on your heart. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. For we, it's talking about us, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
We are being transformed by Jesus as his law is written on our heart. This is done through the working of the the Holy Spirit. And if you have eternal life because of your faith that you have placed in Jesus Christ, you experience this. We talk about this way. Your want to's change, right? The things you want to do change. Sometimes slowly, sometimes kicking and screaming, but they change. The old desires begin to go away. The law moves from mind to heart. And the problem is people, you'll hear this said today. I don't want mind religion. I want heart. It's all about heart. It's just me and Jesus. And there's a problem there. Because it's not just about all all the heart. And understanding what I've just said, it's amazing that the law of God's written on our hearts. But how how does the, the law of God get to our hearts? Through understanding. We must know. We must know the law. We must commit to it. We must love it in our hearts. It's not just about having heart religion and not mind religion. We need both. Knowledge is necessary. If you say, I often have used this example in the past. I'll use it again. If I say my, I love my wife and I never talk to her and I never want to be around her, you would go, you don't love your wife. Why would you say you love her, but you don't want to engage with her? The same is true with Jesus, right? If we say, I love Jesus, I just don't need the Bible. And you're like, uh, no. This is where you learn about Jesus. How would you say you, or, or I don't have time for prayer, or I don't have time for devotion. You're saying, how can you say you love Jesus, but you have no time for the relationship with him? We need that relationship God is doing this work in us. And as Paul tells us in Philippians, he who began this good work in you will see it to completion. He'll work it to his good pleasure. This is great encouragement. If we trust in Jesus Christ, then this is being made true in our lives. He will make us faithful. He will work faithfulness in us. He will engrave it on our hearts. This is the encouragement for all struggling Christians, right? I don't think there's anything aside from that. They're struggling. We're all struggling Christians. We struggle from one degree to another. But we're struggling. We're not made perfect as of yet. And this is an encouragement that he is doing the work in us. He is transforming us, as Paul says. Again, Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It is by God's word that he saves us, that he changes us. And this is wonderful, beautiful truth. The the blood of sacrifice has been poured upon your heart and where the law of God dwells. So we have a better Law, because the law is written on our hearts. But next, he says, you have a better forgiveness. And this is actually skipping one, but it makes sense uh, in the order of which kind of salvation happens. We go down to verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. God promises to give us forgiveness Of our sins. John Owens, the Puritan writer, says this. 
This is the great fundamental promise and grace of the new covenant. The first thing that is necessary is the free pardon of our sins. God has forgiven the wickedness of his people. He comes as that spotless lamb. Where is the lamb? The lamb is Jesus Christ. It's what John cried out in, in John the Baptist cried out in John 129. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is by the death of the lamb Jesus that we receive by faith the promise of forgiveness. So through sacrifice, we have forgiveness of sins, but it goes even further. And I will remember their sins no more. Wow. He will remember our sins. Now, is it, does God like literally forget our sins? That's not what it's saying here, right? This is what it's saying. Any of you have any debt that you owe? Um, most people at least have a house debt potentially maybe credit card debt i will guarantee you something that until you paid that off your lender will not forget that you owe that debt they don't if you've ever had someone owe you money you remember where that money is supposed to come from right you understand that that debt is not forgiven and this is the language that's being used here but here's what happens when you pay off the debt people don't come back and say hey remember when you owed me money no they've collected their money they're on to the next person who owes them money right And this is what God does for us. We have a debt that we owe to God. In our sin, we have affronted the holiness of a perfect God. And the result of that is his just punishment. And Jesus comes in and says, I take that punishment. Everything that they owe, I take it. Ooh, would you love for someone to come in today and say, everything you owe, every money you owe, I'll take that on and you don't owe it any longer. Your house is paid off, your credit cards are paid off, your car's paid off, everything. What would it be like today to be debt free, like truly debt free? Life changing, right? Now think how minuscule that is compared to what life changing thing has been given to us in this text or in the Bible. Jesus Christ, the son of God comes And we owe a debt to God that we cannot. I I love that parable of the the wicked servant, right? And he comes in and says, you know, I I can't remember what it is. It amounts amounts today to like millions and millions and millions of dollars. And the, and the, the king being merciful says, okay, I forgive your debt. And then he goes to the other one who owes basically a year's wages and and hasn't beaten thrown in prison because he doesn't pay him. That picture there of like, we have that insurmountable debt that we cannot pay. There's nothing we can do to satisfy the debt that we owe. And Jesus Christ comes and he pays it in full. Paid in full is written in our ledger, our eternal ledger. Paid in full. Guess what that means? There's no part that's not paid. So... We need to stop sitting here or sitting wherever going, I haven't done enough. I'm not good enough for Jesus to love me. I'm not good enough for God to have me as a child. No, your ledger, if you're in Christ, it says paid in full. So now we get to look at Psalm 103, 12 and go, your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? 
How far, and don't think of in a circular sense, not talking, well, we'll eventually meet up over here. No. Theoretically, if you can go in a straight line as far as the east is from the west, how far would that go? It doesn't end. That's how your sins have been removed from you. Because of what Jesus has done, your sins are removed from you as far as the east is from the west. So that God says, I remember your sins no more. How often do we come approach the throne of God and go, I still am bringing the burden of my sin before you. And not in the sense that we're going, I'm asking for your forgiveness, but actually allowing that burden to weigh down on us. I love Pilgrim's Progress, that scene. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, the great allegory of the faith written by John Bunyan, where Pilgrim, at the beginning, Christian, is walking around with this massive burden. If you've ever seen illustrations, illustrations, it's like, kids, the kids might appreciate this analogy if you've seen uh, how the Grinch stole Christmas and the Grinch has that bag full of like toys that's like, and he's carrying it around and it's like bigger than this room. There's this image in Pilgrim's Progress of, of Pilgrim and he comes to the foot of the cross and what happens to that burden? It falls off. It rolls down Calvary's hill. The sin, the burden has been removed. So we no longer have to be weighed down by it. When we understand who God is, his perfect holiness. When we understand we cannot earn that forgiveness, but that Jesus has made that forgiveness complete. The lamb was slain in order that we would not have to receive the punishment of our sins. So we can say with confidence, God remembers your sins no more. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are trusting on him today, hear my words. Jesus remembers your sins no more. Stop beating yourself down with them. Stop beating yourself down with them. God has removed all of this from you. It's a joy. That's that's why one of my favorite Pauline proclamations, I love when he goes, thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has done this. Thanks be to God. That should be our response because we have a better forgiveness. And third and finally, we have a better promise. begins at the end of verse 10 and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from least of them to the greatest God has promised That he will be our God. This is the first part of the promise. I will be your God. God has reached out to his people. He has called them by name. And he has promised to write holiness on our hearts. God has overwhelmed 
sin by the power of his grace. And he promises to be our God. And he extends that promise even further. He says, and you will be my people. You shall know me from the least to the greatest of you. This is done through the working of the new covenant, through the grace that is offered through Jesus Christ. This has been put upon us so that we have a better promise, a better covenant. It's the scene with which the whole Bible comes to its culmination, that future day that comes to pass, Revelation 21, 2 and 3, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. We see this in part now, right? As we've talked about uh, the indwelling of the spirit. We are now have that spirit indwelling in us. And yet we know it's not perfect yet, right? We know there's a time coming when uh, this new Jerusalem, and not a literal new Jerusalem, this this is the, the new people of God. And he will reside with his people. He will be with them as their God. I often will use this analogy, oftentimes to my detriment at a wedding, and I say something to this effect. Uh, your bride today will never be, look as good as she does today. Uh, and oftentimes people go, ha, 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 that's funny. You're making fun of the bride. That's not my intent. My intent is this. On a wedding day, as the bride comes down the aisle, she's perfectly arrayed in white. The hairs, hairs are all in place. Makeup's all perfect. She has the flowers. It's this wonderful, beautiful day. But here's the thing. For the Christian, as Jesus looks on us, that's how he sees us. Jesus has sewn together a robe of white out of his own righteousness. And he's put that upon his people. And so when he looks at us, he sees us in that way. He has removed our sins from us. And so Isaiah in Isaiah 62, 5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He is rejoicing over us. He has given, it, given us the garment of salvation, the robe of righteousness. We have the righteousness of Christ put on us. He promised that he would give it to us. He accomplished it through his son. And through faith in his word. This promise is made manifest in our lives. This is such a wonderful, beautiful thing. Because I feel like we far too often fail to understand that God loves us. We can easily fail to understand God loves us. He's not out to get us. God who spoke all things into being is your God. That he looks on you as beloved children, adopted sons and daughters. He calls you. You are, if you are in Christ, he looks at you and he says, 
You are my people. I am your God. I have established through my son this relationship with you. Live as my people. We get to come now boldly into his presence and approach the mercy seat with all confidence and hope. I think it is very appropriate. I love that we are singing before the throne of God this month as our hymn of the month. He preaches this so well. That we get to come before the throne of God with confidence and boldness because of Jesus Christ. It's who we are. Are we living out that identity? If not, why aren't we living out that identity? We have, we must live who we are out. Running to God who has called us his own, taking comfort in who he has made us to be. So God looks on you. If you are in Christ, he says, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I have given you a better law. Not one that is just in your minds that you must externally obey. But a law that is written on your heart covered by the blood of my son. And I have given you a better forgiveness. If you are covered in my son's blood, then I do not account your sins to you any longer. Do not hold them. Do not hold against yourself what I do not hold against you. And I have given you a better promise that I will be your God, that you will be my people. And this is the wonderful thing. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant administration given to Moses, as the people came out of Egypt at Sinai, he said, these are the regulations by which you stay in covenant with me. And he gave them all these laws they had to follow. And what did they do? They failed. They failed. They committed adultery, and this led to divorce. It led to exile. But under the New Covenant... If you're in Christ, there's no failure. There's no failure. And that's awesome. That's awesome because he comes and he says, I have secured this relationship through my son's blood. And so now you are my people and I will dwell with you for eternity. Put you not Put not your hope 
in what you do. Put not your hope in your good deeds. Put not your hope in the accomplishments that you think you are doing in this world. Put your hope in me and what I have done for you. And come before my throne with boldness as a son and as a daughter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this good news of this new covenant that Jesus has made secure through his blood. Father, would you apply this truth to our hearts this day? Give us the hope and the encouragement that is found in these words. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.